Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Word Stories is a place for women of color to share their experiences in the workplace. We're no longer whispering these stories to our best friends and partners and then shoving them to the backs of our minds and just dealing. We're talking about bias, equal pay, bad bosses, racist hiring practices, and all the crazy things your coworkers have done or said to you. This is a safe place to tell those stories. The floor is open, y'all. We are telling it all. Welcome back to Work Stories, everyone. In honor of yesterday's uh, voting day for many states, um, including my state of Texas, I decided we were going to do a politics-themed episode. So today we're going to be talking to a Latina educator who is also running for Congress in the state of Washington. Let's see how working in politics has been for her. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Let's start off by you just briefly introducing yourself to our audience. Yes, absolutely. So hello, audience. My name is Stephanie Gallardo. I'm a teacher. I'm a union labor organizer with the Washington Education Association. And I'm also a candidate for Congress in Washington's ninth congressional district. (laughs) Awesome. You are an educator, you're a teacher. um, And I was really interested in how you transitioned from teaching to deciding that you wanted to run for office. Um, How did that go? You know, honestly, it felt very natural. Let me tell you why. Because so I've been an educator for, let's see, five years as a classroom teacher and 10 years within public school systems. And when I started becoming a a classroom teacher about five years ago, um, the content area that I was working in was history and specifically United States history. And so U.S. history has always been an area of study that has really intrigued me. Um, It really has to do with a lot of my own personal history um, and U.S. involvement in other countries, such as my home country, which is Chile. And of course, just understanding how institutions um, really impact um, the, the present day lives of folks in our communities and how they were built up over time. Right. Not just in a in a blink of an eye. And so when I started teaching United States history, um, the questions that I was getting from the young people in the classroom were really, really strong questions, like questions about, you know, why do why does this small group of people have all the power in our country or things like, you know, how was enslavement or the Jim Crow laws that we all know um, existed and continue to exist in many ways? Um, how were those things allowed to happen? 
Um, why was it that in the 1950s and 1960s, it was the largest layoff of um, Black educators in history um, following the Brown v. Board of Education decision? So all these questions that young people were asking me about our institutions and our government um, really prompted me to start looking at our political system a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, what essentially happened was I ran for a position um, within our labor union, the Washington Education Association. And um, I ended up being elected to represent our state at the national level. And at that point is when I started to be in conversation with our legislators, um, our congressional legislators, about every quarter. And <laughs> those conversations were what really, really prompted me to decide to run um, because I was I was worried about how these folks were responding to the questions that we had as union uh, labor organizers and as educators. And I was worried about the way that I was witnessing um, one specific legislator, my opponent, um, how he was treating the people in his meetings. I just couldn't believe it. You know, I'm a person that really takes deeply the lessons that my parents have taught me about how you treat people. And what I saw, what I saw was that um, my opponent simply doesn't treat people well. Wow. So that's kind of how it got started. Wow, dang. You started off strong right there. I was like, what? <laughs> Just calling him out right away. Um, that's awesome. And I think that that just reminds us all the young people in this country are more involved and interested in the political system than probably any other generation before them. Um, so, th- so they're, I'm sure, inspiring a lot of other people to be like, okay, if these 16 year olds want to get involved and want to do what they can and want to learn more, shouldn't we as adults do our due diligence in learning more and then helping to change things? So Mm -hmm. that's amazing. So, okay. So the first thing I think of when I think of somebody running for office is like having your business for the world to see being scrutinized (laughs) and having that be the distraction from what your platforms actually are and the good work you're trying to do. (laughs) So that's just my first instinct when I think about it, particularly for women, particularly for women of color. I'm like, I get nervous. So what mm-hmm. challenges did you predict before you decided to run? I definitely predicted that I was going to get attacked from all sides for being a um, very outward spoken socialist and supporter of socialism. Um, I knew that was going to come, but you know, for me, the way that I arrived at socialism was something that is, is much different um, than for many other people who are involved in the political system. And for me, it's, it's rooted in my family history. And so um, I have plenty of ways to be able to come back at people who, uh, you know, come at me sideways about being a socialist. Um, I, I would also say that I did not predict how difficult fundraising would be. And it is really the bane of my existence because my opponent and folks like him all across the country are funded 100% by corporations and corporate PACs and, you know, really wealthy donors. Um, I was just looking at a chart today that showed me um, organized by campaign contribution amount, how much I received um, for under $200 under $200 donations. And I'm leading the way in the, in the race with over $46,000 in campaign contributions under $200. Whereas my opponent who has over a million in the bank has under $20,000 in 
under $200 campaign contributions. And so to me, that goes to show you, you know, it's clearly the wealthy, the corporate interests that are funding folks, most particularly in the Democratic Party right now, um, and making it more difficult for people like me to break into the scene and try and create the change that we want to see. So I wasn't expecting it to be as difficult as it is. um, But now that I'm here, it's also, it's, it's new, but it's not a place that, you know, my people, my ancestors haven't ever been before. So I feel good about about moving moving forward. Wow, that's that's amazing and definitely a, a great accomplishment. Um, and also feels completely unfair, right, that somebody gets to be backed by these yeah. big powers um, and that could pull them into the race further um, just because of who they know. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you're out talking to people and sharing your ideas, what, how are you being received? Um, what are people saying to you in these conversations? Yeah, I think the number one, I, number one thing that I get is, um, when I tell them how long my opponent has been in office, which is 24 years, um, every single person is completely shocked and says, no, 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 it's time for something new. It's time for someone new. And so, um, I think that's the, the, the first and, and most important thing, because as somebody who is a socialist and a democratic socialist specifically, um, I do believe in term limits. And I'm really excited that we have the opportunity um, electing lots of democratic socialists across the country to be able to um, start implementing policies like that um, at the national level. So that's one thing. I would also say um, folks are really interested in, healthcare. And I think, you know, before we started recording here, I mentioned to you that I was uninsured for, I believe it was three months. And it was a time where I truly (laughs) did not understand how, how deeply scary it is to be uninsured and, um, you know, wanting to make sure that you're taking care of yourself in the best way possible, even though for working class people, that's not always possible. And so what I'm hearing most from folks is definitely that they need better access to healthcare and that they need to be able to go to the doctor without worrying about, you know, having tens of thousands of dollars in bills coming from just one, one session or going to the emergency room. And so in terms of how people are receiving me, I would say um, they're definitely receiving me well. I've gotten almost no negative feedback. Um, Of course, there's always a right winger or two who wants to come at me in some way, (laughs) but that doesn't, that to me is not, that's not real. You know, I mean, it's real in terms of people's viewpoints and value sets, but it's not real to me in, in the base that I'm trying to build here. I'm trying to build a movement in, in collaboration with, you know, many other already existing organizers and community members. So it's not just about me. It's about, um, how the community is truly, forming together to be able to make this thing happen. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I'm sure it's beautiful to watch and, um, and just have that experience in general, an experience that very few people in this country, in this world will ever have, right? Um, you're part mm-hmm. of a select group now just by running. Uh, so that's, that's cool to be able to connect with your community like that. Um, so on like our work stories, Instagram, we talk a lot about um, what women in this country need to be able to be more successful in the workplace. And I feel like a lot of your platform speaks directly to that. We were talking about Medicare for all, um, union power, the rights for workers. Like, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you see as being the way um, 
paving the way, I guess, for for women at work and and what how does politics play into that? <sighs> you know, that's a big question. <laughs> I can barely get it out, so I'm sure <laughs> it's hard to answer. <laughs> no, it's it's a good question, though. It's a really good question. Um, the first thing that it makes me think of is, um, you know, for people who choose to have a family in this lifetime. Um, you, you, we all know that the United States is one of the worst places to live for new parents. Um, and so for women specifically who choose to have, um, babies, um, most of them, the vast majority of them do not have access to maternity leave. And that's something that's, you know, being doled out in the reconciliation bill right now. And it looks like it might be on the chopping block. So that's something that's, we, we really need to, to keep looking at. Um, but, I think when it comes down to it, when I think of my own experience as a woman um, in the workplace, um, what I encountered most is a constant um, belittling of my experience, of my understanding. Um, I used to get referred to all the time as the twin um, because there just so happened to be one other light-skinned Latina who worked in the building. And so there's just this constant like diminutives that, you know, and these microaggressions that women have to, to live through in the workplace. And you would think being an educator, being a teacher where it's the vast majority um, are women, that it would be different. Um, but the fact of the matter is that um, the vast majority of principals and administrators in education are still men rather than women, even though there's a higher population of women who are educators. And so the structures that we function within and that we exist within are still patriarchal structures that create um, often toxic work environments for women. Um, and I would also like to point out that, you know, people who are non-binary and working in the system have it even more, have even more challenges um, to work through. I've worked with several um, non-binary colleagues who are constantly having to fight for their own humanity in the workplace. And it's something that I think that um, there are so many things we can do specifically as union members and as union leaders to try and combat that type of um, not only behavior, but structural problems within the system. Um, so I would say the the foremost important thing that we can do um, is build up the power of our unions and become a union member. And if you're not a union member, you don't have a union in your in your place of work. It's time to start organizing one. The more union power that we have, the more we're able to change the conditions of our workplace. And the union element is so key because when I'm talking to people and they have pretty serious issues at work, their one question is like, how do I get legal representation if I don't have the money to, but I want to like push it further. And isn't that mm -hmm. one of the benefits of a union, right? Like if something happens, you have the whole group behind you and a legal team to help when something happens like that. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. yep. That's exactly how it works with us. Yeah. At least. It's good to know. Hope you guys are taking notes listening. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Yeah. So I saw you post on Facebook a little while back, you know, sharing your thoughts about, not wanting to call yourself a person of color, even though you're Chilean and Mexican. Can you talk to us about, you know, what point were you trying to make and what was your your message around that? Yeah. I mean, let me just start by saying it's complicated as hell <laughs> to like go through this journey of self-discovery, trying to figure out where is my place? Honestly, it's been a journey that I've always been in. I've always wondered, you know, am I white? At least, especially most, especially when I was younger. 
um, because I went to public schools that were the vast majority were white people, white students. And so I remember very specific moments in my upbringing when I had to choose, am I going to be white in this moment? Am I going to be like my white friends? Or am I going to stand up or defend my people? Because most of the time in that situation, there was something that was occurring um, that was either discriminatory towards Mexicans or Chileans or whatever it may be. And so the key factor and the reason why I decided to make that post um, is because I came to the realization that the fact that I can choose to be white, the fact that I can choose to be white is really the point of it all. And for me, I've always been called the gringa or what, which basically translates to white girl in Spanish. Um, I've always been the gringa of my family when I was younger. Oh, I used to get so mad about it. I used to get so mad that they would call me gringa. I would cry. I would yell. I would be so upset. And in retrospect, I realize that is part of like the journey that I've been on is, is accepting the fact that I can't control how people view me. I truly cannot control how people view me. And some people might see me as a woman of color. Some people might see me as white. And, you know, I have to be secure in who I am, which means for sure, I know that I am Latina. I know that I'm Chilena. I know that I'm Mexicana. I also know that I'm American. And what people I feel like get complicated and confused all the time about is the difference between race and ethnicity. And um, a lot of people think, especially people who um, have a stereotypical mindset about what a Mexican person looks like. Their view of a Mexican is, um, you know, people that you might see on the news crossing the border, very stereotypical, right? Um, who have darker brown skin. And um, when I actually think of the people in my family who are Mexican, they're very light skinned. Some, some I even thought were white when I first met them. And so, um, I do have so many privileges extended to me because of the fact that I have white skin and I have not wanted to admit that point for so many years um, because I thought it somehow took away from my identity as a Chilena and a Mexicana. Um, but that's just not true. It's not true at all. Like I can, I can be um, fully repping Chile, fully repping Mexico, fully repping USA and still have white skin. Like it doesn't take away from my identities in any way, shape or form. And also the last point I'll say on this, um, actually two more points. The last point I'll say is that um, the reality that I live is, is one in which I am protected by my whiteness. And so I have never had to experience um, getting pulled over by a car as a brown person like my brothers have and the fear that they experience when that happens. Um, I have never had to deal with police in the way um, in, in the in the fearful ways that um, my my black cousins have experienced. Right. I have, in fact, been pulled over twice when I was 17 by police officers and they wrote on my ticket that I got because I was speeding. Um, they wrote on my ticket that my, my race was white. So that's further evidence to me that the world oftentimes sees me as white. And so I have to accept the fact that people do view me that way. And I do get afforded privileges um, that are in alignment with that. And so that to me is really critical. And the last thing I'll say about this is I think that most white Latinx people who bring up this conversation or who are scared to um, start talking about this, it's because 
they had the mindset that I did, which is that somehow having white skin um, takes away from our identities as Latinos um, or whatever your specific nationality is. And the fact of the matter is that it's that's just not real. We are 100% who we are, but it's super incumbent upon us to be able to identify the privileges that we have, because otherwise we're contributing to anti-Blackness, not only locally, but globally. And so that's why I decided to stop identifying necessarily as a person of color. I won't stop people who identify me as that on their own. Um, but what I will say is that I'm not going to be outwardly saying I am a woman of color anymore. Uh, wow. Okay. I feel like this is kind of revolutionary. <laughs> Maybe it shouldn't be, but it feels like a big deal when I'm hearing you say it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, is there a sadness or a feeling of being left out to not understand those things? Because even though like who wants to be oppressed, right? Like, okay, nobody's signing up for that. But there is a lot of camaraderie mm-hmm. and bonding within cultures and races from the things that we mm-hmm. experience. It's how we form communities. It's like a club, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Does it feel like you cannot be in the club or do you just show up differently? Like, I Here's the thing. I don't feel left out because I still experience that camaraderie in the places that it makes sense for me. So like, for example, um, when it comes down to um, things that are related to like police violence or um, institutional inequity that is, you know, based in anti-Blackness, which is really everything, um, there are groups, right, that come together that that are, you know, groups of folks trying to understand and reconcile and work through um, how to survive these systems. And I've never shown up to those spaces anyways, because my experience has never matched the experience of, the, of those people um, in those who show up to those groups. So in, on one hand, like I'm not missing out on anything because I've never gone to those things anyways, because it's never, ever impacted me in the same ways that it has for folks that go to mm-hmm. those groups. And so um, I do like I have called myself a woman of color my whole whole entire life until now. And so where the sadness comes in for me is because um, my my mom raised me as a woman of color. Like that's how she identifies me. And so having to talk to my mom about this is definitely a sad thing. But she also, you know, if you look back at the Facebook post, my mom also commented on it and said, you know, this is really, really deep, the reflection you're having. And I think my mom is also starting to look at it a little bit differently. She recognizes that um, our familial experience is not the same for each person in our family. So my brothers are both six foot four, six foot five, very, very, very tall, very big men. And they are definitely brown skinned men. And that is undeniable. I, on the other hand, have this white skin. My uh, my hair is very light brown sometimes, depending on the time of year. And um, our experience of certain familial moments is not the same. So like one thing that we had happen many years ago, I think I was maybe in middle school. Um, my parents had just bought their first home and it was in Kenmore, Washington. And we were out doing yard work as a family because, you know, of course, we didn't have money to pay for a landscape or anything like that. So my parents put us in some work clothes and we got out there and did the work. (laughs) 
And um, I kid you not, several times while we were out there, the people who are driving by the front of our house would stop and they would get out and ask my parents um, for a card because they thought that they were actual hired landscapers as opposed to the owners of this house. Yeah. So that happened multiple times. Um, But, you know, what's funny about that is that in talking with my my family about that experience, um, I actually wasn't outside when that happened. I came outside after it had happened. And so sometimes I wonder, you know, what would that situation have looked like if maybe I was the front person in the pack Or maybe I was, um, you know, somebody who was more outward facing in the situation um, because, you know, it is a situation that's clearly, clearly stereotyping the people that are doing the work. Um, But like I said, like our experience of the situation was just completely different. Um, And I wonder how it would have been skewed if things might have been a little bit different or if my brothers were inside, for example. Yeah. Like you're the privilege of your family. So if you had been out there, yeah, how would have it played out? This is some serious reflection (laughs) to make a statement like that and really push people, I think is, is amazing. And I want everyone here to, to think about this. If you are fair and if you are not fair to really push the people in your life who are, who, you know, walk around with different privileges than you, um, to name it, own it, and then move through life with that so that they can be a benefit to people who don't have that stuff. So Thank you for talking about it. Part of the reason, the other reason why I did decide to make a statement um, about this was because just like you had mentioned earlier, like I really wanted to push other white Latinx people to be taking this type of um, thought into consideration. Um, One recent experience, um, you know, affinity groups, people will, you know, there's the Latinx affinity group, there's the black affinity affinity group, Asian, whatever the groups are in the room. And um, in a recent educational affinity group, Um, I went to the Latinx group and there were other darker skinned Latinx people in the group, as well as one um, white Latinx who's way lighter than me. And I would say almost undeniably a white person. And um, after leaving that affinity group, she felt like very uncomfortable in the group because um, she said that she wasn't being accepted as a Latinx person in that group. Um, But Here's the deal. (laughs) Here's the deal. Um, In that action, in her feeling uncomfortable in that group, she's already outing herself as somebody who does not feel belonging with people who are darker skinned than her. And she's also making it all about her whiteness when the the point of an affinity group is to is to um, bond and reunite and try and, um, you know, build community around the things that make you the same and also the things that make you different in some cases. Um, but that was just one example of why I really want to push white Latinx people because there are some spaces that truly aren't for us and we should be okay not going into yeah. them. Wow. Yeah, that's um, that's that's an important topic and I definitely don't hear it talked about enough. So thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, when we get in these spaces, we have to be very clear about how we show up, right? And mm-hmm. and this is one way for us to be acknowledging our privilege. You know, skin tone is one way. There's a lot of other ways too. We need to be very clear of when we enter spaces. Um, you know, educationally, uh, 
income. You know, some of that stuff is just uh, we show up and we think, oh, I can sit here and I can have these conversations and I belong here. Um, and it's just uh, might not be a space for you, even if people look like you yeah. in the space. <laughs> I'm going to say that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. Um, so I guess to kind of conclude, I love the charge of like of women, um, Latinx, Black. Asian women getting into politics in particular. Um, what advice do you have for women looking to get involved in the political system? Um, I know there's a lot of hesitance. It can be intimidating and people don't usually want to sign up for scrutiny. So what advice do you have for people? Yeah, I honestly, my, my, the best piece of advice I feel like I can give to other folks who are in the same position as me is to just do it. And don't give a flying F-U-C-K about what these other people have to say about you. Because um, when I first decided that I wanted to run in this race, people were like, why don't you start with something smaller? How about city council? How about state legislative race? And that right there is just people trying to disempower you and make you believe that you can't actually do the job that you are more than capable of doing. And so I feel like... Um, not only should people, specifically women who are, you know, wanting to get into into political office or whatever higher position of power they want, um, they should not only truly believe in themselves, but ask their family members and their closest members um, to to start believing them in a in a in a different way. When I started to ask my community members, like, listen, I'm thinking about doing this. I want to do this. I don't know how to do this, but I know I need help. Um, they started stepping up in different ways for me. They started holding me accountable to the dreams that I was speaking about. And so when your community steps in for you, that's when you know it's a go. Yeah. I feel really excited and feel lucky and everyone should feel lucky, especially the state of Washington, that they have you in the race, that they have you to vote for. Um, so mm-hmm. thank you so much for <laughs> your work as a public servant and continue and wanting to continue to be a public service. And of course, thank you for coming on and talking today. Thank you so much to Stephanie for giving us a glimpse into her life and politics, but most importantly, for sharing her newfound take on her own identity, something that is so personal to all of us. I hope our conversation will spark more conversations between you and your loved ones, conversations about race, ethnicity, privilege, and particularly the privilege of folks who are white passing. If you'd like to learn more about Stephanie or support her campaign, you can head to electgallardo.com. That's elect, G-A-L-L-A-R-D-O dot com. And if you were listening to this show and you were thinking, wait, should I be running for office? The answer is yes. It's always yes. (laughs) Check out sheshouldrun.org for a little inspiration. Till next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.